Well, tonight's going to be an exciting class. We're going to start our study of sacraments. And um, I noticed I could give myself four classes to talk about sacraments. I'm not sure I'm going to I can take up all four. But uh, tonight, we're going to approach the sacraments in a slightly different way. We're missing Zach, right? That's right. We'll, we'll just wait for him because I, I think he's gonna. He's gonna. I think he's gonna like this class. This is this class is for Zach. How's everyone doing? Our group is growing. We're getting more and more people here. Excellent. That's really cool. Maybe we'll eventually get Cheryl back. She is supposed to be here. She's supposed to come home on Saturday. Unfortunately, it is supposed to snow on Saturday. So I don't know how, the, how that's going to affect her drive in from Colorado. And I checked to see if she could come back earlier, but she's got appointments there. So she can't leave early. So hopefully we can, hopefully she'll be here. Okay. And take my mask off. I just, I, you know, one of the things I've discovered is I find it impossible to understand people with masks. I just don't know what they're saying, but we've got distance enough that I can take it off here. So, tonight's topic is entitled The Quantum Sacrament. So, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. <laughs> Already, we're thinking. I've done, I've done works on, I've done talks on, on, theological implications of quantum mechanical theory before. And I did once to a high school group and one girl was just sitting there shaking her head saying, this is giving me a headache. This is giving me a headache. <laughs> so let us, uh, let us open with the word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask your grace to be with us, that you bring anointing to our hearts and to our minds to fully embrace you with our mind, our will, and our emotions, that we would know you, and in knowing you would be able to follow you more, more clearly and more deeply, and communicate your love for all mankind. In the name, and we pray together as Jesus taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll open with a personal story. This happened many years ago, over 20 years ago. And uh, it was the, the Hubble telescope was a fairly new thing at that time. And there was as an exhibit that was going around the country of photographs from the Hubble telescope. And uh, so uh, one of my daughters won some free tickets from a radio show, you know, she was the 10th caller or whatever. And, and uh, so she got these free tickets and I thought, well, this sounds like fun. So the whole family went to see these, these photos from the Hubble telescope. And one of them I thought was really fascinating. It was just a, it was a black sky with lots of different stars, lots and lots of stars, but the stars were all different colors and shapes. And so I, I was wondering what was unique about this photo and I'm reading the description and it was the first of the Hubble deep field photographs. And the deep field photographs were taken by finding small patches of blank sky in the night and setting the Hubble telescope there for 24 hours peering into that one little blank piece of sky. Now the piece of blank sky they were looking at at this particular photo was described as about the size of a postage stamp, just a tiny, tiny little piece. And we only get pieces of blank sky because we exist at the very edge of the Milky Way galaxy. So there are some places we can there aren't any stars obscuring our view. We can look out beyond um, our galaxy into the space 
beyond, and that's what this was. It was looking beyond our galaxy. So all these stars I thought I was seeing were actually galaxies, other galaxies. On this photograph from this postage stamp size piece of sky were 3,000 galaxies. And as I'm looking at this photograph, I said to myself, your God is too small. My, uh, my concept of God was just too small to fit into space of that size. So it was, a, um, it was one of those pivotal moments for me. And I began studying, reading and studying and, and listening to lectures on uh, astrophysics and quantum physics and a, a variety of, uh, of the physical sciences to try to deepen my understanding, not just of the universe that I'm in, but of the God who made the universe. How big is God really? And how does God fit into this? Well, as I said, this was the very first of the deep field photographs. Two others followed, um, at least two others. One was done in the Southern Hemisphere to reproduce this, the, to see if, the, if they could reproduce this effect, and they did. And then they began to use longer exposures and greater intensity in the focus. So in the, what they then called the ultra deep field or uh, pho uh, photograph, they counted 10,000 galaxies. And then there was another one. The last one was done in 2003 where they discovered, no, excuse me, the, the, the 2003 photo was had 10,000 galaxies. The 2012 photo revealed over 15,000 galaxies. So in the tiny, these tiny little patches, they're discovering thousands upon thousands of galaxies. So apply a little math. So if, if you take that in a, and spread it around, that means that there are 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And you multiply that by approximately a trillion stars per galaxy, and what you discover is this is a very big universe, 170 billion trillion stars in the universe. We come face to face with this kind of immensity and we realize that the, it, the incredible power of God. But we also need to understand that God is much bigger than we have thought he was, at least that I thought he was. God is much bigger. We can apply the word infinite to God, and that's a good thing. But it's a meaningless term. We have no concept of infinity. We don't know what infinity is. We can't relate to it. So, anyway, I was raised, you know, in um, an evangelical uh, Protestant tradition. And so I went to Sunday school, and I listened to Bible stories. And as I did this, I developed some very rudimentary understanding of, uh, of God, of, of what the, an image of God was from my childlike understanding. And of course it was, as you would expect, it was made in, you know, um, it was made in an image that made sense to a, a, to a, a child. And God was very anthropomorphic. We're made in his image, right? So we figure, well, God must look something like us, you know, because if we're made in his image, surely we must look something like God. And, you know, the kind of emotions that we, we, we experience, love, anger, uh, je even jealousy. These are emotions that perhaps we should, we should be ascribing to God. But when we do that, we limit God so much when we, anth you, okay, then we're throwing out a big word here, anthropomorphic. Um, anthropomorphic is when we take human characteristics and we apply them to God. And the Bible is full of that kind of language. Because if we're going to talk about God in human language, 
we have to find symbolic ways to express God. And especially when we're talking about things like the Old Testament. I've mentioned this before. In the Old Testament, there are only 8,000 words, 8,000 different words. I mean, um, so, because uh, Hebrew is, is a language that just didn't have a whole lot of vocabulary. It's a, it's a very ancient language. You just didn't need a whole lot of vocabulary to move a tent from one place to another and take care of sheep and goats, you know? So, when they talk about God, they use symbolic language that includes a lot of, of, of humanness, anthrop, you know, humanness about it. The strong, God's strong right arm. You know, we, we, we read passages like that. God sits upon his throne in the heavens. But in that symbolic language, that doesn't mean we need to go out and look for a God on a throne out in the sky somewhere. But Greg uh, Gagorin, the, uh, I forget his first name, the Soviet cosmonaut, first man in outer space says, you know, because he's an atheist, of course, because he's a Soviet, and says, all right, I've been to outer space and I looked all around and I couldn't find God. But that's because we had shrunk God down to such a weird little small size that we expected something like that of God. But the truth is, if we continue to view God in anthropomorphic terms, as in human terms, we wind up creating an image of God that is very much like ourselves, kind of a supersized version of ourselves. And I think that's true of, of most, most Americans, most American Christians I know. Their view of God is really just a very—it's a big version of the bigger version of themselves, and that's why they can get disappointed with God. They can get angry with God because they think God should be doing things the way they would do them. Because isn't God a lot like me? So we need to expand our understanding of God. And of course, we've talked about this a lot through this class, but today we're going to particularly look at. Uh, some astrophysical um, items and, and, some, um, and some quantum mechanics to see how we can get a better grasp, better understanding of God. So let's begin, like, like everything begins, with the Big Bang. Isn't that, what, isn't that what the theme song says? It all began with the Big Bang. Monsignor Georges Lemaitre. Anybody heard of Monsignor George, Father Georges the Maitre, Belgian priest. Um, he was he was a, a priest in Belgium. He also hold gra held graduate degrees in, in philosophy and mathematics, divinity, obviously, and also had a PhD in physics from MIT. Very smart man. And he began, really, it was his reading of the first chapter of Genesis that began to get him thinking about um, how about the way creation worked, particularly in light of uh, theory, Einstein's theories of special and general relativity. And he began to propose that the entire universe uh, derived from a, um, from what he had called a primeval atom, from a primeval atom. And this atom began to expand and create an expanding universe in which we all lived and the universe was continuing, would be continually expanding. He gets this out of Genesis 1 and a whole lot of math to go along with it. He used to travel and lecture. At one of his lectures, Albert Einstein happened to be, um, happened to be present and Albert Einstein said this about uh, Lemaitre's lecture. He said, this is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation to which I have ever listened. However, he didn't agree with Lemaitre. And the reason he says he didn't agree with Lemaitre is because of metaphysical implications of his theory. Now remember, he's doing this completely from math, by the way physicists do these things. 
But Einstein could tell that he th would think, well, he's a priest and he's influenced by the scriptures. He's influenced by the Bible. He's trying to make the world fit into this Genesis package. And so he, 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 he loved the math, he loved the explanation, but he, he wouldn't buy it because he thought that there was too much metaphysical, too metaphysical. Well, anyway, people began taking note of Lemaitre's theory when uh, Edwin Hubble, namesake for the Hubble telescope, was able to prove through redshift of, of stars that the universe was indeed expanding in all directions which was exactly what Lemaitre had predicted. And then finally, when two uh, engineers from Bell Labs discovered the universal cosmic background radiation, which proved that Lemaitre was absolutely correct, they renamed his theory to uh, the Big Bang, and everybody else wanted to get credit for it. So you actually very seldom see Lemaitre's name in association with the Big Bang Theory, but he was the one who came up with it and had discussed it with, you know, the likes of Edwin Hubble and Albert Einstein, who then went uh, on to prove his theory. But what did God create in the Big Bang? What was the Big Bang? First place, it's not a bang. It's not an explosion. And um, it is an expansion, but it's an interesting expansion. Um, the universe is does not expanding outward from a center like you would expect if it was like there was like a big bang instead it's it's expanding in such a fashion and don't ask me to try to explain to us how this works but I just know that that this is true wherever you stand in the universe it appears that the universe is expanding in all directions from where you are it's kind of bizarre and the universe is not expanding evenly, it's going in one direction, which is one reason scientists talk about a multiverse theory, that this universe will eventually give birth to another universe down the road in another 15, 20 billion years. And that might be true because that's kind of the way God does things, right? There's a, there's a birth cycle, there's a growth, there's a giving birth, and then there's a death. And so it would make sense in the overall scheme of things that perhaps our universe gives birth to another universe before it dies. So space and time are the two critical things that are created at the Big Bang, but also energy. Energy is injected into space. Now, that energy in Genesis 1 is called light. But remember, you've only got 8,000 words to deal with. They didn't have words to describe pure energy or, or things like we do today. So, so the light dispels darkness. And remember, the darkness doesn't exist. It's, there's, a, there's a, in Hebrew, it's tohu vavohu. There's, it is formless and void. It is emptiness. There's nothing. There's no space. There's no time. God interjects pure energy. And from that energy that comes from that event that we call the Big Bang, that energy gives birth to everything that exists in the universe. As it expands at an, an incredibly fast rate with incredible heat and light. Now, God's creation dispels darkness, creates matter, and God says of it, it is all good. Everything God creates is good. And evil, darkness, is just the absence of the presence of God. Darkness, as Albert Einstein liked to always point out, there is no, darkness does not exist. It does not have any existence. It's just the absence of existence. It's the absence of light. Darkness is a shadow. It doesn't have any substance in and of itself. It is just the darkness. It is the void. So in Christian history, there was used to be a heresy, still exists, very popular actually, called Manichaeism, in which 
there's a view of good and evil where God is good and the devil is evil and they're on like of equal power and they're always fighting each other. And that's not the biblical understanding of, of God. God is all and in all. The devil is the prince of darkness. He's the prince of nothingness. He is the prince of the void, of the emptiness. The devil has no power of his own. He only has the power that we give him. And that sounds like a really bizarre thing because everybody thinks the devil must be really powerful, but he draws his power from us. All the devil can do is lie. He's the prince of lies. All he can do is lie. He draws his power from humanity believing his lie. Now in this, you are, of course you catch on them, I kind of anthropomorphizing the devil, but I don't have any other way to describe it, to talk about it, because we're limited in language. So how to, how to rationally discuss non-existence is a little difficult, but anyway. So God creates all things and all things are good because God is all and is in all. Well, what happens, I'm not sure that my notes are, make, are following a good line. My notes come from a lot of blog posts that I've written over the years and I tried to combine them all. <laughs> what happens is people like me, they go, to, they go to Sunday school, they learn about God, they draw the pictures, God sitting on the throne up in the sky, they sing the song. Oh, you didn't sing this song, but I was, I was raised you know, part Baptist and I remember this song. We used to sing a song, out, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Do you remember that song? You didn't say that. You're Catholic. You're, your husband probably knows that song. And, you know, so there was this concept, you know, heaven's out there somewhere. We just haven't found, it must be in outer space somewhere. It's a place that we're all going to. And that is, that so messes with our heads. Kids then grow up and go to college and they begin to be introduced to concepts like a universe consisting of a 10, billion, trillion stars or whatever that number is, and the billions of galaxies. And suddenly the universe becomes bigger than their God. And with the universe, they are understanding with the stuff they're, being, they're learning in college is bigger than their childhood understanding of God that they've tried to walk with their entire life. There are only a few things that can happen. One is they can grow up their understanding of God. And that takes a little bit of thought, prayer, meditation, and development of spirituality to expand our understanding of God. And that's a journey I've been on for years. The other thing that can happen is you can get the split personality where people will, you know, believe in God kind of in this compartment in their lives and then they believe in everything else in another compartment in their lives and they and those two kind of coincide with each other they have their little compartments but what often happens is what I call effective atheism there are people who will just stop believing in God because you know their concept of God just isn't big enough now, one of the things I tell people who do that, they get to that point, they just become atheists. I tell them, you're absolutely right. The God you don't believe in doesn't exist. You believe in this little Sunday school concept of God, which was fine when you were seven years old, but that's not the true God. That's maybe a good description of Zeus, you know, or a Greek God, someone who sits on a throne somewhere and, and plays with people like, like chess pieces, but that's not our God. That God does not exist. So people can come uh, either atheists or they can get to the point where they just put God on the shelf and they figure he just doesn't matter. He may be there, he may not be there, but he doesn't have anything to do with me. And then there are all those who are disappointed with God because if they've anthropomorphized God, they expect God to act in, in the way they would act. If I were God, I would, have, I would do this. God doesn't do that, so there must not be a God. In fact, I just saw an article online recently where the author said the, the strongest argument for the non-existence of God is that God does not act the way we expect him to. <laughs> because we expect things from God. That God doesn't come through, there must not be a God. 
the disappointment with God. But there's a great deal we can learn about how what God truly is by understanding the way that his creation truly is. In this quantum world that now is part of our reality. Now we all went to school, you, you, some of you went to school at a much later age than I did. When I went to school, almost everything I was taught when I was in school was wrong because it's, it's all been changed. Everything has changed since I went to school in the 60s and 70s and uh, everything has changed. But I was taught when I was uh, in school is that there were atoms and atoms consisted of three subatomic particles, electrons, protons, and neutrons, and they were particles and they had an electric charge. But the more we've grown to understand the subatomic world, the number of particles, which are not particles, is expanded. I think the last account I heard was 138 different particles. There are different kinds of, of quarks and um, a wide and bosons and fermions and a whole wide variety of subatomic particles. But what they are, they are an energy that exists in a quantum field in potentiality. That's a, those are big words. And what that means is that the stuff that everything in the universe is made out of is pure energy. I mean, it looks solid, it feels solid, but it's pure energy. And these subatomic particles exist in a field and what makes them and it is as potentialities, they're potentials. And what makes them cease to be potentials and become something that we would call real or share in the real existence is the act of observation. And these quanta, as they are known, are constantly moving, flying about, passing about. We know sitting here today, uh, sitting here tonight, we share quanta back and forth. Electrons and quanta are moving back and forth between us, passing between. You have a mask on so you don't catch them, right? <laughs> because they exist in, principally in the quantum field as potentialities. Now, how do we know this? It all began with an experiment done by a guy named Thompson and it was called the two-slit experiment. Anybody know the two-slit experiment? That's something some of you have read about, studied. And that is where you can force subatomic particles, anything, I think it was first done with photons, later done with electrons, but you, you take, and you force them through two slits, all right? And your expectation is then that they're gonna form two bars on whatever screen it's being projected into. So you take a flashlight, you cut two little holes in a piece of cardboard, you put a piece of cardboard there and you see two pieces of cardboard. This is the problem. That only works when you're observing it. If you take that measurement when you're not observing it, it doesn't form two nice little bars of light on the, on the screen that it's being projected into. It produces a wide spectrum of bars because when you're not observing the activity of subatomic particles they cease to they cease to react in what a way that we would call the real world and they become waves it's called the particle wave duality these things exist both as particles or matter let's call it matter and waves but the only, we only see them acting as matter when they're being observed. What? How does anyone know that? You can't observe it. No, but it can be measured against the screen. So you can, so you can see the radiation lines on the screen, but you, even though you're not looking at it. I know, it's a, you have to look up the two-slit experiment and you'll, you'll find pages and pages and pages online about the two-slit experiment. So here becomes, the, here becomes an interesting question. If, if 
the potentialities only act as matter when they're observed, is there an objective universe? Now this was the debate between Niels Bohr, the man who uh, discovered the atom, wrote, created the first model for the atom and founded the Copenhagen School of Quantum Mechanics, Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein. Niels Bohr said there's no such thing as, a as an objective universe. Everybody's universe is different. Everybody's, all universes are subjective to an observer. Albert Einstein said, that's rubbish. <laughs> of course the universe exists in places where no one's observing it. The universe doesn't have to be observed to be there. It has to be there. This debate went on through their entire lives. Albert Einstein died first, and Niels Bohr, when he died, he was in his study, trying, or working on the blackboard, trying to work out the answer to this debate between himself and Einstein about the nature of reality. Is there an unobserved reality? There's an excellent book by a man by uh, Kumar. Can't remember his first name. Called Quantum. It's a pretty hefty book. And um, I don't know, it's like 12, 1300 pages. And it's all about this debate between Einstein and Bohr. You don't have to read the whole book. There's only one line in the book that matters. <laughs> and at the end of the book, Manjit, Manjit Kumar comes to the conclusion that there's no such thing as an objective universe. And his conclusion state, is stated like this, there can be no such thing as an objective universe unless you put a God into the equation who's bigger than the universe and observes all things. But Manjit Kumar is an atheist. And as an atheist, he had to reach the conclusion there's no such thing as reality. You know, generally, when you people who say there's no such thing as reality, you know, you start calling a psychiatrist. But for quantum mechanics, for quantum physicists, this is, this is par for the course, that there's no reality because the only way for a reality to exist is for there to be a God who observes all things at all times. In other words, the God who sees, the Old Testament, that is Yahweh Yireh, the God who sees. That's the name, that's one of the names of God in the Old Testament. He is the God who sees, and his observation creates our reality. Only when God is brought into the equation, can pure energy and real matter come together and be one? And so this whole universe is built upon the, con the understanding that God created energy that interacts as matter because he is there. Trying to find my place in my notes here. In theology, in Christian understanding, we call that sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is where heaven and earth come together. The spiritual and the material come together. God and man meet in sacrament. Energy becomes matter in sacrament. The whole universe is created around this concept, this understanding of sacrament. 
Every atom in our bodies exists because God's presence brings energy and matter together. Fascinating. Now, if you read, you read about the Higgs boson, anybody read, been reading the material on the Higgs boson been coming out for the last four or five years? They've, they've tried to isolate the Higgs boson in uh, uh, Bern, Switzerland at the super uh, collider there. And Higgs boson, interestingly enough, is usually referred to as the God particle. They think that's the particle that communicates between energy and matter in this interaction. It's called the God particle, <laughs> but that's not what it was originally called. Um, it was originally called the goddamn particle because nobody could isolate it. <laughs> For decades, they kept trying to isolate this particle and they never could do it. Finally, they think they've done that in, uh, in Switzerland. But oddly enough, it was called the God particle. It, play, it, it, is, it participates in this interaction. It's the communication. It's a boson, which is a communication device between subatomic particles. And um, it communicates between energy and reality to make, to make energy and matter to make it reality. But this is what God does. And every atom in our being is infused. The scripture would call it God breathed is the breath of God that brings energy and matter together so that we live in this universe. It's the, it's what makes this universe tick. So in sacraments, God, well, it's all, all sacraments are based upon the incarnation. God became human. God became flesh. The God who made all of this, put all this, who is all of this and is beyond all of this. He was all and is in all became flesh and bones. That is sacrament. We talk about the spiritual and the material coming together as one. That is sacrament. And so that's why in the church there are several sacraments, but in each of the sacraments, you always have a physical element and a spiritual element. We meet God in sacrament, or I guess I should better say, God meets us in sacrament, and we receive from God his grace. But in every sacrament you have the spiritual and are the divine and the material, the earth, earthy stuff. So we start off at baptism. And in baptism, we have water and we have oil, earthy stuff. And through the material stuff of water and oil, God adopts us as his children. We receive a new birth as adopted children of God. In confirmation, we have the repeat of the use of oil which we see oil in a lot of the sacraments because it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And the oil, olive oil, there's a reason for that. We'll get into olive trees later, but, uh, but olive oil is used because the in confirmation, the Holy Spirit infuses his gifts into us to give us his power to live the life that God has created us to live, to fulfill his purpose in us. At confirmation, each individual receives their personal Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them to impart gifts upon them. In the Eucharist, the, the elements of bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Again, the earth elements and the spiritual elements come together for the forgiveness of sins and for the unification of of man with the God, man, Jesus Christ. In holy orders, again, we, we, have, we have the laying on of hands, physical touch, physical touch, human touch to human to impart the sacrament of ordination, which is the impartation of the authority of the government of God in the earth. In the anointing of the sick, again, we use oil, for the healing of body and soul. In matrimony, 
This is fun. The earthy stuff of matrimony is physical intimacy. The priest does not impart the sacrament of matrimony on the couple who are getting married. The priest is the witness of the vows, the church's official witness of their vows. But the physical stuff through which God imparts his grace is the physical intimacy of the married couple. They impart the sacrament to one another. Wow. It's all good, right? It's all pure. God creates, has created us in this, in his image, but it doesn't mean he looks like us. It means that we participate in sacraments in all that we do. And then finally, I like this one in the sacrament of reconciliation, usually called confession. We're getting into Lent, so people are going to want to do this. In the sacrament of reconciliation, the materialness of the sacrament and the spiritual effect of the sacrament, the grace of the sacrament, are one and the same. The priest who in in persona Christi, as the person of Christ says, I forgive you. The human voice is both the medium of the sacrament and the effect of the sacrament. Powerful stuff. So, again, this is all built upon the very building blocks of the nature of our universe, where energy and matter come together, God and man come together, and we experience grace. Here's, here's something like that. I, I, I remember I highlighted this in my notes from St. Athanasius. St. Athanasius was a second century, so excuse me, fourth century Alexandrian saint. He was a deacon who went to the Council of Nicaea, the bishop he went with died, so they made him the bishop, and he was the principal author of the Nicene Creed, what we say every day, uh, every Sunday. And he's talking about the logos, the word made flesh. Logos is a Greek word, which we usually translate as word, the word made flesh, but that's really not what it is. Um, it carries into English in, in the suffix ology, ology is like biology, which is the sum of all knowledge about the bios, about life, or geology, the sum of all knowledge about the earth, the geo. So ology or logos really means the sum of all. Christ is the sum of all things compressed into a human person. And St. Paul puts it this way, the fullness of the Godhead existed in human form. But St. John uses the word logos. And St. Athanasius writes about the logos. He says, the almighty and most holy logos of the Father pervades the whole of reality. The whole of reality, everywhere unfolding his power and shining on all things visible and invisible. He sustains it all and binds it together in himself. He leaves nothing devoid of his power, but gives life and keeps in being throughout all of creation and in each individual creature. Think of a musician tuning his lyre or guitar. By his skill, he produces a series of harmonies. So to the wisdom of God, holds the world like a liar by his decree and will he regulates all things to promote the beauty and harmony of a single well-ordered universe. Or let us take the example of a choir. Many voices produce a single harmony or the example of our soul. It moves our senses according to their functions so that in the presence of a single object, they all act simultaneously. I like this, his use of these examples of the lyre, stringed instrument like a guitar, or a choir. 
Like I said, as we explore more and more quantum particles, we begin to expand the number and trying to create some way in which they all come together. How do they work together? Well, okay, I'm not sure where the, that part of the notes is. Um, how do they all work together? See, most of us grew up learning Newtonian physics, how, how the planets move about, how gravity works, all the things that, that affect us pretty much in everyday life. But the more we began to understand, understand quantum physics, we more realized that these two do not work together. They don't, they, they don't function in the same way. For example, you ever heard the quantum, the quantum leap? All right, the reason it's called the quantum leap is because quanta are able to move from one place to another without passing through the intermediate space. They just cease to be there and they begin to be here. How, do, why, how and why do they do that? Because they exist as potentialities in a quantum field. A quantum, a quantum, a quantum particle exists in all places, in all the universe, at all time, and it just pops into reality here and it can pop out and pop back into reality over there. It doesn't go in the in-between space. They don't work, you know, Newtonian physics and quantum physics do not work together. In an attempt to understand how this all fits, Mathematicians have come up, mathematical physicists have come up with the understanding that the entire universe is comprised of music. You ever heard of string theory? I'm sure you've probably heard the term, but what that means is, is that every, all the quanta, everything that makes up every, all the little bitty pieces that make up the big pieces of the universe and just keeps growing and growing and growing. At the most elemental level, they are one-dimensional strings, kind of like the strings of a violin. And they vibrate in 11 different dimensions, producing these incredible harmonies. Of course, we can't hear because they're tiny. These incredible harmonies. And this vibration creates the subatomic particles that then become the atoms, become the molecules, become the cells become a living or become everything else. It all starts in these tiny little one-dimensional strings, which is how the whole universe at one point, at the very beginning of space and time, the day, the day, so no, the day of which, at, at which there was no yesterday, I think it's how quantum physicists refer to this, that point in time. They're one-dimensional. You press them all together and they take up no space, because one dimension has no space. But when you interject them with energy and this vibration in 11 different dimensions begins to take place, then they expand and create the universe. The world is music. The universe is music. No wonder music has always been a part of our religious expression of our spirituality. No wonder music transcends language. That's why it even transcends species. In all, you know, the various people who have played music, you know, to, to birds or to animals, to chimpanzees, to lions, you know, people, you know, things they found in the wild, they play music and they stop and they listen. It speaks to them somehow. Remember the old RCA? you know, a photo of the dog listening to the, to the gramophone, the, ancient, the old gramophone. Music speaks to all of creation. It arises from all creation. It's the stuff of which we are made. God's string symphony that spreads throughout the universe. It produces gravity, these strings by creating something called gravitons. I don't need to go into all that, but you get the picture that I'm talking about, that God is so huge, God is so big, 
but it is our experience with God is the very stuff of the universe. That's why the incarnation had to happen. There had to be an incarnation because that's at the very core, that's the universe that God created. The universe is, the whole universe is in a sense an incarnation of God. It is an expression of his presence. Without God, there is no universe. Of course, we say that's simple because, yeah, without God, there would be no creation. But it, it is his existence, it is his energy that makes this all happen, makes this all work together. I see why I'm confusing myself. I've got two sets of notes here. And so that's what I was wanted to share with you about quantum sacrament. That we have a Catholic faith that we've passed on for a couple of thousand years, and that Catholic faith explains to us a great deal about sacrament. But beyond that, the very nature of creation itself teaches us what sacrament is and that sacrament must be. So I'm going to stop now and break for questions. I think I've probably given, is, have I given anybody a headache tonight? My brain <laughs> I've been studying this for years, all because of a photograph and the conviction that my God was too small. And so I just began to delve into these subjects, not so that I could understand the subject so much as that I could know God. I could know God. So anyway, yeah, I'm sorry, your brain hurts, but anyway. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's like a muscle. You store your, 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 you work it out. Yeah, that's great. All right. I'm, I'm, are there any questions about this material? Yes. Oh, I need to put my mask on. You'll have to bear with me as I try and articulate the question here. So we, we say that we were created in God's image, but as part of what you're saying or, or part of the quantum theory that it's not so much a physical image like a bipedal human, but rather our subatomic makeup in our psychological like on the fact that we are intelligent life like maybe that it doesn't really have to do with our our physical what I see of you and what you see of me but more what's inside of us uh, in, in you know our intellect and our conscience and yeah being made in God's image does is does not mean that God is it God it looks like us God is not in our image And I think it means a lot of things mm -hmm. to say we're made in God's image. I think at the first place, God is Trinity, all right? And God is love. So in mankind, we are, you know, we, have a, we are triune beings as well, spirit, soul, and body. Um, so we share a triune nature with God. We are created with the capacity to love. We are created, we have a spiritual nature and we have the capacity to worship, to experience unity with God. Now, in a sense, all of creation, you know, has some, has a relationship with God, but not in the same way that humans do. Humans have a unique, um, at least on this planet, <laughs> <laughs> I won't even talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to talk about all the other, you know, all the other possibilities. But at least on this planet, it is humans and humans exclusively that have a spiritual nature that are able to worship. 
that are able to have a, communi a communion with God, a oneness with God, a unity with God. So I, that, I think, is the, you know, the biggest one when we saw it created in God's image. But also there's an eternal, an eternity. We are created to be eternal. The universe itself is not created to be eternal, I don't think. I mean, there's there's this whole thing about the universe falling into another universe, you know, that may exist out in a multiverse somewhere, but um, we're not certain about that yet. We're just <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of uncertainties and oh, there is so much uncertainty. We know so so little. Um. So anyway, one of the things I did was expecting. people to want to think about this, I, I printed up copies of my notes. <laughs> now remember, this is like a, it's a little disjointed because it's a collection of a lot of blog posts and other things I've written or talked about from time to time. So it's a little disjointed, but that does, everything I was talking about tonight should be in there. Who else has a question? Zach, this, this, this talk was for you. Do you like, you got a question? Ideas kind of, like the question itself slowly grows. Is there, so if this planet, the, the, we are the species that are in God's image because of our intellectual capacity and. Not intellect, spiritual capacity. Okay, spiritual our capacity. Our spiritual capacity, yeah. Is there an equivalent to Jesus on other planets with life with an equivalent spiritual capacity to us? Well, I mean, why wouldn't would God be in dominion over those planets too and would want to talk to them too, right? There's an excellent, there's an excellent trilogy of books written by C.S. Lewis, science fiction books. Have you read them? Paralandra, Out of the Silent Planet, and uh, Paralandra, and there's, well, there's a third book. And in this trilogy, imagines life on three planets, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And the, the Venetians and the Martians they get along fine, they talk to each other, and, and it's all good, but there's a silent planet, and that's the Earth. And they don't understand why the Earth doesn't talk to the rest of the universe. And then, of course, as you go through the trilogy, you discover it's because um, Earth has fallen. We separated ourselves from God. So anyway, that's just, you know, Pardon? A spoiler alert. <laughs> the, the books are well worth reading. Anything by C.S. Lewis is well worth reading. Um, but theologists ponder those exact questions, but have no answers. And um, and, it, and they're interesting questions to ponder. You know, but that but that's the first question. If if there are spiritual beings uh, or spiritual physical beings like us on other planets, did they fall? Did they reject God and need to be redeemed by a savior? But wherever wh whatever God creates, He communes with. He is all, and He is in all. In in. Book of Acts, it says, we, in him we live and move and have our being. We're swimming in God. I guess it would probably look a lot different for some other creature, species, a billion, billion light years away, or whatever. However God communicated with them would look very different than... We have, we don't, we don't, we, we don't have any idea. I'm actually surprised that we haven't found life elsewhere. 
I mean, I, I keep thinking they're going to uncover it at, on, at Mars. There's a, oh, do you, want, do you want me to blow your minds? Anybody want my mind, their minds to be blown? All right. <laughs> in Genesis, in chapter two, where um, God creates Adam and Eve from the dust of the earth. Well, the word dust there is very specific. It's red dirt. <laughs> so you already know where I'm going, right? You can equally translate from the red planet. God created man from the red planet. So maybe we were originally Martians and, and we, we migrated here at some point 250,000 years ago. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, we, we, we think and we ponder about all this stuff, but, but we really don't know the answer. And, and I know that I, I've kind of brought in a lot of things tonight, but ultimately it all comes down to loving God and loving our neighbor, right? That's where it all comes down to. And this, all this really is to do, the whole reason I go into this is because so many people, particularly younger people, have given up on God because they, they can't conceive of God. And if they can understand you know, God from his quantum nature, then I think it starts to make, God starts to make sense. At least to me it does. God starts to make sense. And it starts to become inevitable and the incarnation becomes inevitable and, and sacramental worship becomes inevitable in the way God created all things. We have a, a parishioner who's really into UFOs. He wears, he's got, he's got the badge and the t-shirt and the whole nine yards. <laughs> he wears it at church in a really cool little straw hat he wears all the time. He'd love to talk with you about life on other planets. And my wife, Cheryl, oh, she's probably listening. Hello. Yeah, she had experience with, with a UFO years ago, back in the uh, early 70s, I think before I knew her. So, yeah, it's, UFOs are not, extraterrestrial life are not part of Catholic theology, but Catholic theology says nothing against it. We're not, we're not opposed to that. We're not, we're not so, so proud to think we're the only species on the, in the universe that communicates with God. Other questions? Well, good. I, uh, I'm glad that this, uh, I hope this was, I know this is a different type of thing. But again, the reason that I share this is because you have friends that are probably challenged you. Why you bother going to church? Don't you know? You know? Don't you know that we've just proven the need for God? And obviously, that's not true. But and others of us have, you know, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, that uh, struggle. I tell you, my nieces and nephews struggle in their life because they do not have any anchor. There's nothing that holds them steady, and they just bounce around completely lost. God has given us a church to give us an anchor. Not that the church is always right, but God has given us a church to give us an anchor so that we can go through life steadily. And, and interesting, I was, um, was looking at a homily I, I did just a couple of months ago on Psalm 103. And I quote a study it says that people who go to church live 25% longer than people who don't go to church. There's a remarkable difference to having an anchor in life that gives you direction and focus and just flopping around, you know, directionless in life. Well, it's eight o'clock. Actually going to end on time. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have here. And Jesus, we thank you for the marvels of this universe that you have uh, allowed us to live in. That you have, and you have given us the ability to know you, 
to seek you, to grow in you. You have given us the ability to love, to love you and to love our neighbor. And in that, to prepare our hearts for all eternity. We give you praise, dear Lord, and we praise you together in the doxology. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. I hope that uh, you got something out of tonight and you can read through those notes. <laughs> Make Rusty read them. He'll love it. <laughs> Let me hit the thing here. God bless you. Thank